Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we turn to you this morning and ask, Lord God Almighty, that uh, you would draw near to us. Lord, as we go through chapters 12 and 13 of uh, the book of Joshua, Lord, it can be a difficult uh, couple of chapters because of lists and details which don't immediately jump out and, and speak to us. But we ask, Father God, for you to send your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text, to cause it to come alive to us and to speak to us, that we might be able to draw from it lessons to be able to encourage us and help us in our walk and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so as I said, we are in the book of Joshua and we're doing chapters 12 and chapters 13 this morning. Joshua assigns the land east of the Jordan. Now, up to this point, uh, well, certainly last time we saw that Joshua and Israel had uh, gone into the promised land. They had completed the southern campaign and they'd uh, completed a northern campaign of going throughout the entire stretch of the land and subduing the people. Uh, it was a sweeping invasion of the country to eradicate the majority of the opposition. Uh, but pockets of resistance and uh, uh, people would have yet to be dealt with. But after the land had been assigned to the various tribes, it would be the responsibility of the individual tribe to finish the work of taking dominion of the land. So as we come to Joshua 12, uh, with the conquest of Canaan complete, inventory is taken of the battles and the victories that had been won. Uh, inventory of territory that had been gained and recorded. And here, if we look at this map before us, we see the uh, pink shaded areas is the ground that was taken uh, uh, after Joshua's north and south campaign. Uh, with uh, Jordan going down in the middle, there was uh, the ground taken uh, on the east side of the Jordan, which was taken under the leadership of Moses. And then uh, on the west side of the Jordan, we've got the territory that was taken under the leadership of Joshua. And uh, what we do here in chapter 12 is we see a review of that territory that was taken, the battles fought and the victories won. And this might appear like a tedious list to us when we read it. But the reason for this record is that it marked what land belonged to Israel. This was Israel's inheritance. And so this was an important list to them. It showed them what land belonged to him, them, what God had given them. And it's always good to look back upon your Christian walk and recognise those things that God has given you. Those things that God has poured into your life and blessed you with and to give thanks. In many respects, this chapter is like a land registry form detailing the borders of the land that belonged to Israel. And it serves also as a statement of the victory that God had afforded his people. And again, it's good for us to look back upon our lives and remember the victories that God has given us. So let's uh, read verses uh, one to six. These are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side of the Jordan towards the rising of the sun from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern Jordan plain. Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. And there we see Heshbon highlighted on the map. 
and ruled half of Gilead from Aurora, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabok, which is the border of the Ammonites, and the eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinneroth, as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, and the road to Beth Shemesh, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. When he talks about the Sea of Chinneroth, that is the Sea of Galilee, Galilee and uh, the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea there. Verse 4, Og, king of Bashan, that was the second king that was defeated under Moses' leadership, and his territory was gained, who was of the remnant of the giants, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and Edrai, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salkai, and over all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead, as far as the border of Sion, king of Heshbon. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So when it comes to Sion, king of the Amorites, this was Israel's first proper military engagement. Sion and the city of Heshbon were so famous that songs were written about them, and there is a song recorded about Sion and the king of Heshbon in Numbers 21, verses 27 to 30. Sion had conquered the king of Moab and taken his land. And we see that in Numbers 21 as well. And when Israel saw passage through his land, Sion refused. And instead of giving him passage, he met Israel with a military force. He's brought his armies up against Israel. So there ensued a battle between Israel and and uh, Sion and the Amorites and uh, God gave Moses and Israel victory over Sion and they took his land so that is how they gained that southern portion of land there on the east side of the Jordan following that Israel's second military engagement was with Og king of Bashan and this is a well-known figure because Og was a giant he was the last of the Rephaites and it is recorded in scripture that his bed was 13 feet long and six feet wide. He was a big man with a big bed. And the Lord reminded Moses and Israel of the defeat of Sion when it came to them fighting Og. And basically God gave Israel confidence to take on this giant based upon the fact that he'd given them victory already over Sion. And again, this reminds us that um, our present battles uh, can be won and fought with confidence and faith if we look back and remember the past victories and battles that God has given us in Jesus Christ. So this land uh, occupied by these two kings was substantial, as we can see, and it was divided between the Reubenites, the Gadites and the uh, half-tribe of Manasseh. And you can see there adjacent to that, the division of the land uh, under uh, Joshua. And you can see the territory of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben there. So that's um, uh, the, uh, the uh, east side uh, victories leading under the, uh, under the leadership of Moses. Now let's turn to verses 7 to 24 when we read about the... Uh, victories under the leadership of Joshua so reading from verse 7 and these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered 
on this side of the Jordan, on the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak, and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Stalagmites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, one, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Giza, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geda, one. The king of Hormar, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adulam, one. The king of Makadar, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hepha, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasheron, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Achshaf, one. The king of Tanakh, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jochnim in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor, one. The king of the people of Gilgal, one. The king of Terzar, one. All the kings, 31. So in the days of Moses, the Lord had promised Israel victory over the kings that dwell in Canaan. We can see that in Deuteronomy 7 verse 24, where we read, And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And as Israel advanced, they were standing on the promises of the God. Of their God. They were standing on what God had said and revealed to them in the past and moving forward in faith. And as they did so, as they stood on the promises of God, here we see a list of 21 defeated kings, a list of 31 examples of God's faithfulness to his word and to his people. Now, the message of Joshua for the Christian is an exhortation. As Israel pressed into Canaan to receive what God had promised them, so we are. Uh, are called to press into the fullness of what God has promised us. And every point of advancement into the land came as a consequence of a battle for Israel. And the same is true for us as Christians in our walk with God. Every point of advancement in our walk comes as a consequence of a battle for us. And each time we choose to submit to God's will in a situation, 
Instead of following our own instincts and desires, we are securing a victory in a battle and we are advancing in our walk and gaining greater territory in our relationship with God, coming into a great inheritance of blessing and relationship with him. These 31 kings were part of six Canaanite tribes, all descended from the accursed son of Ham, Canaan. And it's amazing to me that such a small land could support so many kingdoms, so many cities, so many peoples, so many kings. And it illustrates what a fruitful land Canaan actually was, that it could support so many people. And the Lord gave Israel the very best, a fruitful land, a land that could support substantial amounts of life. And that's exactly what God wants to do for us as well. He wants to give us the very best. He wants to give us uh, fruit. Now, as the list was recited, people uh, could no doubt place themselves in the battle. They would remember those kings. They would remember the conflicts. They would remember the, the, the battles. They would say, I remember Sion, king of the Amorites. Oh, yeah, I remember Og, king of Bashan. Wasn't he big? I was there when the walls of Jericho came down. God, do you remember those five kings that we hid in a cave at Makedar? And it would all come back to them as this list was being repeated. And while I truly believe that the Christians should always be moving forward in their walk and in their relationship with Jesus, it is good to look back sometimes, isn't it? To, to remember where we have come from and how much further forward God has taken us. To remember the battles of the past, the victories of the past, the way that God has walked through our lives, worked through our lives. Because this provides us with encouragement and especially when things are tough and difficult, the past victories gives us that encouragement to keep on going, to press further into the promises of God, even though the going gets tough. I also think to myself, as this list was recited, uh, the battle-worn soldiers would recall their brothers-in-arms who stood next to them as they fought, those who helped them in the battle. The words they spoke and how they encouraged them in the heat of the battle to keep on fighting. They would also remember their fallen comrades, those who did not survive the encounters and the skirmishes, those who fell by the wayside. And isn't it the case that when we look back on our Christian walk, we remember our brothers in arms. We remember those people of influence who encouraged us when we were in the midst of the fight that encouraged us to keep on going, though the odds seemed to be stacked against us. The words that they spoke into our lives and how they encouraged us to remain faithful and to stand upon the word of God. And as we look back upon our past battles in our Christian walk, I'm sure we can remember those fallen comrades as well. Those brothers who fell away from the faith. The sisters who gave up when the battle got tough. Those who left us standing alone in the heat of battle and the discouragement that their faithlessness had brought us in our own walk. And really, I, I say this because when it comes to our walk with Christ, sometimes we think it's just us and Jesus that are, are, are being affected. But the battles that we fight are never alone. They serve not only to encourage us as we look back, but they are an encouragement to the brothers and sisters around us at the time. I have 
I have friends in the Lord who have stood and fought the good fight against insurmountable odds. And they have stood when uh, the family have discouraged them, uh, when other Christians have abandoned them, but they have remained faithful to God. And when I look at their example and what they have done, that is an encouragement to me. If they can stand, then I can stand. If they can remain faithful, even though everyone is against them, then I can remain faithful, even though everyone is against me. And what I want us to remember this morning is that your Christian walk is not lived in isolation. The brothers and sisters who are part and parcel of this fellowship, the, the brothers and sisters in Christ that you know outside of this fellowship, they look upon you. And when they see you pressing into the word of God, standing up and being faithful, fighting, even though life is tough, it encourages them and helps them to do the same when they're in a similar situation. But conversely, if you compromise, if you give up when the going gets tough, if they see you sin and compromise, then it puts brings not only a discouragement to them, but it makes them more inclined to think, well, if he can give up, then I can give up. If it doesn't matter to her, then it shouldn't matter to me. We need to keep on pressing on in our walk with God for the sake of ourselves, certainly, but also for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm reminded of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We are called to fight the good fight. Let's agree to keep on pressing on, no matter what the odds. Let's move on to uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years. Nothing like rubbing it in, is there? And there remains very much land yet to be possessed. God put Joshua in mind of his age. Uh, he had been a man of war since his youth and along with Caleb, they were the two oldest men in the land. And finally, it seems Joshua's years were starting to catch up with him. I like how this is rendered in the authorised version. Now, Joshua was old and stricken in years. And any of us who have been on this world for a while and we've worked a hard day and we, our bodies ache, we feel stricken in our years, don't we? I.e. the years started to take their toll on him. Reminds me of what Indiana Jones said in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. And there was a lot of mileage under Joshua's belt. He'd fought and lived a hard life. Now his fighting days are over, but there is still a great deal of promised land yet to claim. You know, in... Uh, in five months time, I'll be 30 years old in the Lord. I have almost walked twice as long with Jesus as I have before I met Jesus. And while I reflect on the battles fought and won and the ground that has been taken, I think of how slow I was to take up the sword in certain areas of my life. Um, how it took me a long time 
to gain the courage to fight certain battles and to defeat certain foes in my life. And I think of how much more ground I could have taken if I trusted a little sooner, if I'd fought a little harder, if I'd submitted a little easier. And I wonder what Joshua thought when he saw not not just the ground that he had taken, but the ground that hadn't been taken, the potential that was there that hadn't yet been fully met. Now, I don't think for one minute Joshua lived with regret, but I'm sure that he saw before him the work that was yet to be done. And I just want to exhort everybody this morning, fight hard now for the Lord. Don't think, oh, I've got all the time in the world. Pick up your sword today. Press forward today. Don't look back when it's too late. There are so many more blessings and riches that God wants to pour in our lives. If only we submit a little sooner, fight a little harder. So, Joshua was charged with two divine commissions. The first commission was to conquer the land, which he had duly done. And the second commission was to divide the land. And really, as we get to chapter 13, we have the great divide in this book as well, because the first half of the book is fulfilling the first commission to conquer the land. Then the second half of the book from 13 onwards is all about the division of the land. And what we also see is that these two divine commissions were repeated. And here in Joshua 13, we see that divine commission repeated. So let's read uh, from verse 2 onwards. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gezites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites and the Ekronites, and also the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mirai, that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorites. The land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon, towards the sunrise. From Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath. All the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook Mizraphoth and all the Sidonians, them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. So the word inheritance appears over 50 times in the next nine chapters. They did not win as uh, spoils of war the land. They did not buy as a business transaction the land. The Jews inherited the land. It was their inheritance. Now, the Lord had first promised the land to Abraham in what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant. And in that covenant, God had promised the land not only to Abraham, but all of his descendants. So that was the first uh, time that this inheritance was foretold to the um, Jewish people, to Israel. 
Now, the Lord made a second covenant with Israel, commonly called the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, this contained laws of conduct and sacrifice and morality. But then there was a third conduct uh, covenant, the Land Covenant. And this was a covenant that the Lord again made with Israel, which built upon the Abrahamic Covenant and further promised the land of Canaan to Israel. Now, the reason I point these out to you is uh, I want to make it absolutely clear that the land belongs to God and he gave it to the children of Israel. It was an inheritance. It wasn't as a result of spoils of war. It wasn't as a result of purchase or payment. It was their inheritance. What's more is that the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant were unconditional. There were no requirements upon Israel to fulfil for that covenant to come to pass. So these two covenants, which promise Israel the land, were unconditional. So if they are unconditional in giving Israel the land, then there is no grounds by which Israel lose the right to the land. There is no, no, no grounds by which that they will be denied it. It's given to them unconditionally. To add to that, the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. If uh, the Israelites failed to ob observe all the statutes and the laws contained within the Mosaic Covenant, there would be disciplines that God would place upon the Jewish people. And one of the eventual disciplines of the Mosaic Covenant is that the children would be removed from the land. And indeed, that happened on two occasions. In the Babylonian captivity, Israel was removed from the land for 70 years. And then after the Roman invasion of AD 70, Israel was dispersed among the nations and removed from the land. But even though that was the consequence of not observing the Mosaic Covenant, the conditions of the Abrahamic and the land covenant remained, i.e. the land was still the Lord's and he still had given it to Israel and had not been taken away. So even though Israel might be taken out of the land, the land still belonged to them because God had given it to them unconditionally that that tells us that the jews have an absolute right to be in israel today because god has given them the land unconditionally it is their inheritance it was their inheritance back then and it is their rightful inheritance today And just to whet your appetite, that's only three of the covenants contained in the Bible. There are actually eight covenants in the Bible. So if you want to do some homework, there's uh, a little bit of study option opportunity for you there. Now, moving forward. Oh, let me just read here. Leviticus 25 verse 23. This is what God said. Your land must not be sold on a permanent basis because you do not own it. It belongs to God. And you are like foreigners who are allowed to make use of it. You see, the land belonged to God, but Israel were the tenants and God was the landlord. Can you imagine God as your landlord? I mean, who here uh, rents their home or who here has ever rented a home? When you compare the landlord that you had or that you currently have, who would you choose to prefer to have? Would you prefer to have God as your landlord or would you prefer to have your present landlord? It's interesting, the rent that the Lord demanded was obedience to his laws and covenants. As long as the nation honoured the Lord with their lives, he would make the land productive 
and keep the land at peace with its neighbours. And the Israelites signed the rental agreement uh, in Deuteronomy 27 to 30. And the, ter the terms of the covenant were read. The terms were agreed by the people. And uh, we also saw that these terms were reread back in the latter half of Joshua chapter 8. OK, so as we go into the rest of Joshua 13, we look at the division of the land. And uh, there are four stages in land distribution. And uh, we see here that were, there were assignments made at Gilgal. And Gilgal was Israel, uh, Joshua's base of operations when they came in the land. That was his headquarters. And it was from Gilgal that they spread out and invaded the rest of the land. Later on, Joshua and uh, the people of Israel moved their headquarters to Shiloh. That effectively became the, the capital and they moved the tabernacle to Shiloh. So there was a second uh, level of assignments or distribution of land made from there. Also, there's a third stage. There were assignments of the cities of refuge where people who committed manslaughter could run to for safety and security. And, fin and the final assignment was of the Levitical cities where the priests could dwell. Now, we are only looking at that first assignment, the assignments made at Gilgal. And certainly we're not going to be able to cover it all this morning, but we'll start to look at it. Let's read uh, verses 8 to 14. With the other, with the half tribe, uh, the Reubenites, sorry, with the other half tribe, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon and the town that is in the midst of the ravine and all the plain of Mediba as far as Dibon. All the cities of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the children of Ammon, Gilead and the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan as far as Salkar. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edurai, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast out these. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but the Jeshurites, Geshurites sorry, and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only the tribe of Levi had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord, God of Israel, made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. So here we have the land east of Jordan. We've looked at this already, but we're looking at it again as it goes through in chapter 13. And these were the territories given to Manasseh, Gad and Reuben. Reuben... Uh, they had requested this land east of the Jordan after they'd won their victories over Sion and Og. They saw that the land was good for grazing cattle and uh, these Israelites were clearly ranchers and they wanted that land. And so uh, I don't think this was God's perfect will, but it was certainly within God's permissive will for them to be able to have this land. Uh, and, you know, there were pros and cons. It was good location for their cattle, um, but. You know, I don't know that it was such a good location for their children and their descendants, because what it what it formed was a kind of buffer zone between the Jews on the east, on the west side of the Jordan and uh, the pagan nations that surrounded Reuben, Gad and Manasseh. We can see there Ammon on the mat, map and Moab on the map and lower down Edom. And so. These these three tribes on the east were a buffer and they were 
they had Jews on one side and pagans on the other. And that made them vulnerable to military attack. And it also made them vulnerable to godly, ungodly influences. And over time, these ungodly influences started to seep in to Gad, Reuben and Manasseh and corrupted them. And eventually it brought their downfall. Um, It says in 1 Chronicles 5 verses 25 to 26. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He carried the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Halal, uh, Halal, Habor, Harara and in the river of Gozan to this day. So... The lesson here is very simple. Don't be led by your eyes, by what appears to be the best. Be led by the spirit and the word, by what God tells you is the best. Something might appear good to your eyes. It might be appealing to your senses. But is it what God wants for you? Be careful about where you position yourself in life. Be careful of positioning yourself in a place where you are under the influence of people that do not have any love or regard for the Lord. Because no matter how strong we think we are in the faith, their influence will seep in and there is a danger of corruption there. Let's carry on reading about the land assigned to Reuben. Verse 15. And Moses had given to the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Their territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the ravine, and all the plain by Mediba. Heshbon and all its cities that are in the plain, Dibon, Bamoth, Baal, Beth, Baal, Mion, Jehazah, Kedemoth, Mephath, Kirith, Jethaim, Sibma, Zereth, Shahar on the mountain of the valley, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Jeshimos. All the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses had struck with the princes of Midian. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur and Reba, who were princes of Sion, dwelling in the country. The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among those who were killed by them. And the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities and their villages. So here we see ourselves looking at the land of Reuben and uh, the boundaries are clearly defined. The cities that were theirs were clearly listed. And so the Reubenites knew clearly what land was theirs. Uh, Of note in that passage, we read about the death of Balaam, son of Beor. We read of Balaam in Numbers 22, verse uh, Numbers chapter 22 to 25. Uh, what happened there? Moab had witnessed the defeat of Sion uh, and Og, and as a result, Moab was struck with fear deep in their hearts. And so Balak, who was the king of Moab, came up with a plan. He hired the services of Balaam, a, a known prophet, uh, to prophesy and curse uh, Israel. Uh, However, God appeared to Balaam and prevented him from cursing Israel. 
Now, Balaam was swayed by money. He was a man who wanted to fill his pockets. And so he defied God and tried to ally himself with Moab for money. And three times he tried to prophesy against Israel. And three times Balaam was forced to bless Israel by the hand of God, much to Balak, the king of Moab's annoyance. But Balaam's love of money finally got the better of him and he found a way to get that money. He advised the Moabites to entice the Israelites with prostitutes and idolatry. And this plan worked and uh, Israel committed prostitution with the women of Moab and it, that caused the anger of God to be stirred up against Israel and God sent a plague which killed 24,000 Israelites. As I say, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. But as a consequence of this, Balaam has become a byword for selling one's soul for financial gain. Uh, Balaam is, uh, uh, the way of Balaam is creating a stumbling block for believers by way of sexual immorality and idolatry. And we can still see the way of Balaam uh, found in churches today to our shame. We can see the way of Balaam in the money preachers who sell their soul for financial gain. We can see the way of Balaam in the liberal uh, preachers who permit sexual immorality among their congregants. And we can see the way of Balaam in the compromising preachers who allow idolatry into their church by mixing uh, Christian practices with uh, worldly practices. And we need to guard our church from the way of Balaam and do as uh, the Israelites do and kill Balaam. Next, we go on to the land of Gad, reading verse 24. Moses also had given an inheritance to the tribes of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Their territory was Jezer and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites, as far as the Aurore, which is before Rabbah. And from Heshbon to Ramath, Mizpah, and from Betanim, and from Mahanaim to the border of Debir. And in the valley, Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Sukkoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sion, king of Heshbon, with the Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to their families, the cities and their villages. So, the land of Gad is where the balm of Gilead was sourced and uh, the land of Gad, uh, by the time of Jesus, had become home of the Gadarenes. And you might recognise that area because that's where Jesus cast out demonic spirits into a herd of pigs and uh, made those pigs suicidal so they jumped off a cliff to their death. Um, not much more to say about this territory, but that was the land that God allotted and gave to uh, the Gadites. And then, in conclusion, we'll read verses 29 to 33, the uh, land allotted to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Moses also uh, had given an inheritance to half the tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, of uh, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities. Half of Gilead and Ashtaroth and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan, were for the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, for half of the children of Machir, according to their families. 
These are the areas which Moses had distributed as inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he had said to them. So this is the land previously occupied by Og, king of Bashan, and partially by Sion, king of the Amorites. And those keen-eyed among us will notice that Manasseh has actually two territories, one on the east and one on the west. And the question arised in my, arose in my mind, why did Manasseh have two portions of land, one east and one west? Well, the answer to this can be found in Joshua 17, verses 1 and 2, where we read, There was also a portion by Lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore he was given Gilead and Bashan, and there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh. So there was a, an eastern portion given to Machir for his services to war. Machir was obviously a very noble fighter and warrior. He had a large number of descendants. And because of his um, performance in taking the land, he was awarded this territory as the spoil, well, not so much as the spoils of war, but that was allotted to him. But the rest of the tribe of Manasseh, they got to dwell on the west side of the Jordan. We'll see later on uh, next time that Caleb was given a special portion as well. We'll read about that in Joshua 14 verses 6 to 15. But it seems that not only tribes were given special areas, but people or soldiers were given special areas as well. Now, in verses 14 and 33 of Joshua 13, we see that the Levites did not receive any inheritance in the land. Twice we're told the, Le- the Levites received no inheritance. And this is because God was their inheritance. He would provide for them so that they would not need to cultivate the land for crops and so forth. Their responsibility would be to cultivate the people by sowing the seed of the word of God into their lives. The responsibility on the Levites was to be the teachers of the tribes of Israel, to show them the way of God, to teach them the law of God, and obviously to undertake the ceremonies within the tabernacle and later on the temple. And when I consider the Levites in closing, I think this is the model for us as believers. The Lord is our inheritance. And our duty, like the Levites, is to plant the seed of God's word in others through our witness, through the things that we say, through the things that we do, how we conduct and live our lives. And that reminds me of 1 Peter 2 verse 9, where it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Our duty is to sow the seed of the word of God into the people that we encounter, to tell them how God has taken us out of darkness into light, how God has saved us from our sins, bought us through the blood of his son Jesus, and given us a rich inheritance in Jesus. And we only have a foretaste of it at the moment in the uh, Holy Spirit. The greater riches and the greatest, greater blessings that will be ours are yet to be experienced.
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, these are difficult things to read through. Their lists, their divisions, their portions of land which we have very little understanding and relation to. But to these people, it was a clear definition of what they had been longing for for years and years and years. They finally had a land of their own. They finally had a place that they could call home. And I am reminded, Lord, that we are only sojourners upon this earth. The place that we are called to call home is that place in your presence, the kingdom that lies awaiting for us. Lord, fill us with hope and expectation uh, for the inheritance that we will come into, while at this moment in time, standing firm for you, pressing into the fullness of all that you have for us, being a faithful witness. Please fill us with your spirit as we go forward into this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.